It was July 18, 1976, and our family was gathered around the TV, and we were watching the Summer Olympics in Montreal, Canada. And that evening, we were um, watching gymnastics, and 14-year-old Nadia Comaneci from Romania made history with a routine on the uneven bars that scored a perfect 10. It was in the compulsory event. It was the first time in Olympic history that anybody had ever scored a perfect 10. It would turn out to be the on, only the first of six perfect 10s that she would score at that Olympic competition, and, and that became great history. We could say without a doubt this morning that the commands carved in stone are a perfect 10. Have you, have you ever considered the unique qualities of the Ten Commandments these qualities of spiritual and ethical code, what makes them a perfect 10? Just consider these for a moment. They came from God. These are not the product of human minds or they would never have lasted so long. They express God's will and expectations for his people. They're pretty straightforward. These words remove any guesswork. I mean, when it says, you know, you shall not steal, Hard to interpret that any other way, isn't it? I mean, they're pretty straightforward. They are imperatives. They form personal and social directives for our lives. They are clear, simple, and exact. You really have to work hard to find a loophole around these directives. There are only 10 of them. God knew we weren't really good with memory, so he only gave us 10. They are a summary of the whole thing, but this is a good tool. This is how you would teach children simple things, and God knows as his children that we need simple things, just 10 of them to remember. You can remember them. And they establish a healthy respect or fear of God. They point out our sin and our desperate need for a Savior. There is nothing like them in history. They are unique, a perfect 10. But of the 10, commandment number one is pivotal. If we understand the significance of this first one, then, then I think the other nine will fall right into place. And, and while I believe this morning that all Scripture is inspired of God, not all Scripture is of equal weight or impact. Now, now let me explain what I mean before you think, what did he just say? Genesis 27:11 says this, Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, my brother Esau is a hairy man, but I am a man with smooth skin. Is that true? Well, I'm, I, 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 yes, it's true. I'm sure it's a very accurate description of the difference between Esau and Jacob. Is it important to the story of Jacob and Esau? Yes, it is. It, it, it helps explain the deception that Jacob went through in the presence of his father who was almost blind. Would my relationship to God be hindered if I didn't know that Esau was hairy and Jacob was smooth? I don't think so. Do you, do you really think that would affect your relationship? Would that affect your salvation? Not in the least. But the first commandment, the first commandment is completely different. If you miss this one, it does 
affect your relationship with the Lord. It may impact your salvation. This is a compulsory understanding. This is monumental. This is equivalent importance to such passages as Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. Or or God's words to Moses at the burning bush when he said, you tell him I I am who I am has sent you. Or the profound Christological passage that opens up the first chapter of John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he became flesh and made his dwelling among us. These statements and other similar ones are the foundational truths upon which our faith in God rests. If these aren't true, folks then we need to close the doors, go home, sell the property because we're wasting our time and resources in simply playing church. Not knowing these things, not knowing this first command does impact our relationship with the Lord and ultimately our salvation. But if this first commandment is true, and I believe with all my heart that it is, then that truth should profoundly impact every area of life, not just Sunday mornings, but my Monday through Saturday mornings as well. It should impact every arena of my life. If you can somehow compartmentalize your faith so that this truth does not impact your work behavior, your friendships, your education, your cultural, social, intellectual, ethical, or political mores, then you need to relearn what this commandment means to every believer. This is fundamental to our faith. And this one needs to permeate every area of our life. You cannot, you must not, you dare not compartmentalize this one. Now I want you to read this passage with me out loud this morning, all right? Um, First commandment. Let's uh, let's see if we've got it here, all right? This is uh, Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 and 3. Read it out loud with me, will you please? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Verse 2 is actually the preamble to all of the commandments. Just like we have a preamble to the Constitution, here is God's preamble to the commandments. This verse is, is actually designed to help meet three of our, our, our very important spiritual needs. And they are these. It meets our need to understand God's gracious attributes. God's very nature, God's very character is gracious. I don't know if you picked this up or not. But this is a very personal statement. God says, I am the Lord your God. He begins with his name, I am. And then he couples with it, the Lord your God. And in this statement, you have an expression of intimate family, the closest of kinships. God took the initiative to build a relationship with us. The wording is not it and them. The wording is I and you. I am your God. What grace that he should take that initiative. It also meets our need to understand God's gracious actions. He said, I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God took the initiative to rescue the people of Israel from Egypt. 
just as he has taken the initiative to rescue us from the slavery of sin. This wasn't anything we could do for ourselves. What's more, we were powerless to effect any change in God. And so, he did it. What grace, again. And then it also meets our need to be grateful for God's grace. The whole purpose of this preamble is so that we will respond. Wow, God wants to, want, wants to have a relationship with me. Wow, God has saved me from my sin. What should that elicit from me but an attitude of thanksgiving? Now, here, I want you to see this for just a moment. But most of the time, when we think of the Ten Commandments, we think about them as written collectively for all people for all time. And that's true. They, they are timeless, and they, for, they are for all people. But in, in thinking that, we oftentimes just think, okay, I'm just one of the gazillions that read these and, 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 uh, and that God sent them to. But the Hebrew language here is structured in such a way that this is incredibly important and personal. This is an individual appeal. Each of the Ten Commandments is expressed in the second person singular. In other words, it's as if God is saying, you, Tom Ellsworth, you put no other gods before me. This isn't second person plural. It's second person singular. It's as if God wrote every one of these commandments personally to everybody in this room. And my gratitude to God is expressed by obeying those commands. To obey his commands is to write your thank you note to God on the stationery of his heart. And then following this preamble, God proceeds with the first and what I consider to be the most important command. You shall have no other gods before me. It's an emphatic prohibition. You shall not. So what does this command mean? I mean, when you read, we've read these so many times, we know them so well that it's easy to gloss over it. You shall have no other gods before. What in the world does that mean? First of all, it means that God is unlike anything or anyone else. He is, as the angels proclaim around his throne, holy, holy, holy. He is separated from everything that is coarse or vulgar or broken or sinful. He must not be treated flippantly or casually. He loves you more than life itself, but he's not your buddy to pal around with. He is not the old man upstairs. He is unlike anyone or anything else. It also means he is the one and only. This is not to be construed that he wants to be your vote to be the top God among many. This is not some kind of a celestial beauty pageant where the God of the Bible is vying for the top prize, a crown, and a bouquet of roses. He is supreme. There is no one else except for the gods of our own creation. That's the problem. There, there, it's, it, there's no other gods out there except for the ones that we create. Don't replace him with anything inferior is what he's saying. He stands alone. He's the only one. Now, somebody is inevitably going to ask this question. Well, okay, what about this Trinity thing? I've heard about the Trinity. If there's only one, how can there be a Trinity? All right, that's, good. that's, that's a fair question. 
And while the word Trinity is never found in the Bible in, in reference to God, the, the concept certainly is. This triune nature of God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit certainly is. Now, how do you get a handle on that? I mean, have you ever tried to explain the Trinity to somebody else? I mean, how, how, do, how do we grasp that? Some people try the Goldilocks approach. The Heavenly Father is the big bear, Jesus is the medium-sized bear, and the Holy Spirit is the little bear, and you're trying to find which one is just right for your circumstances. That doesn't work. Sometimes others say, well, it's a succession of gods. God the Father created Jesus Christ, and then Jesus Christ created the Holy Spirit, and, and each one is just a little bit lower than the other, and in the process they lose just a little bit of God. You know, the, the big God creates the secondary God, the secondary God creates the third God, and, and, and they become just a little less. Kind of like, you know, when you photocopy the photocopy of the photocopy of the original, you know, it gets a little fuzzier. Okay, that, some people think that's what happened. You know, God's the, the, the original, and then Jesus Christ is a slightly fuzzier photocopy, and the Holy Spirit is an even fuzzier photocopy. There's no truth to that. That, that. That's not the picture at all of God. Some have described the triune nature of, of God as a man who is a husband, a father, and a grandfather, all at the same time. Same person, but she got three different roles. But that misses the point, too, because no man can be in one place, three, place, three different places at the same time. And we read in the Scriptures that God the Father spoke out of heaven when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, and the Holy Spirit descended as a dove. And so no, no man can do that, regardless of how many roles he happens to be playing. I still like the H2O analogy. You've got water, you've got steam, you've got ice. They look different, they feel different, they perform different functions, but chemically, essentially, they are identical, H2O. But even that is inadequate. See, here's the problem. We want an easy explanation for that which is beyond our total grasp. It's like trying to tell couples how much you're going to love your child when that child is born. I don't care how much you tell them they're going to love that child. They'll never know until that child is born the extent of that love. Or imagine for a moment trying to explain how the internet works to someone who has never seen a computer. How would you do that? For that matter, Tell me how the internet works. And I use a computer every day. I still don't get it. Do you? But do you think that keeps me from using my computer? Absolutely not. I cannot explain for you the full measure of the character of God or the scope of his triune nature or how God can live in me. I can't explain that to you this morning, but it does not keep me from believing or reaping the benefits of his grace and blessings. There are a lot of things in this life that I can't explain, but I enjoy their benefits. And the very fact that I cannot explain to you the greatness and the majesty of our God increases, not decreases my faith, because who wants a God that I can explain to you? You see, God says, don't have any other gods before me, beside me, in place of me. I am, I am too great to have any inferior substitute 
in your life. This command also means that he deserves and demands to be our top priority, the object of our deepest respect, and the only one worthy of our worship. He alone is God and should be worshiped as such. Its meaning is unequivocal. Absolutely nothing is to be placed before God. No person, thing, ideology, or purpose. Kent Hughes writes, he said, so we must understand that there is no middle ground. There are only two categories of people, true worshipers and true idolaters, because everybody worships something. We all have a God. I believe that what this first of ten words teaches us should be seen as absolute truth. Now, whether or not you accept this as an absolute will determine the entire direction of your life. According to Scottish philosopher David Hume, human knowledge is all experientially based. And since we are prone to subjectively interpret every one of our experiences, and since we can't possibly experience everything in life or in this universe, then it is impossible to make a universal claim about anything. In other words, he's saying nobody can claim anything is true. There is no such thing as truth. Jesus said, I am truth. In John 17, 17, Jesus prayed, your word is truth. Here then is our dilemma. Both Hume and Jesus could both have been wrong, but both of them cannot be right. How we view this first command determines which philo philosophical direction we take. And while you're pondering that, keep in mind that where there is no absolute truth, there can be no absolute values to provide direction in life. And where there are no absolute values for direction, there can be no absolute understanding of right and wrong. Therefore, moral decisions become a purely individual choice based upon one's likes and dislikes. That's frightening. A Barna group less than six years ago reveals that nearly half of Americans in their 20s and 30s believes that morality is based on what is right for the person instead of godly principles. And you say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, the fallout from such a philosophical shift will be catastrophic. People in today's culture need to understand the implications of a society without absolute moral truth. If there is no objective standard of behavior, nothing can be labeled as wrong. If the majority of people begin to tolerate pedophilia and euthanasia, then sexual contact with children and killing sick people will no longer be considered wrong. Rape, theft, and other violations of our personal liberty and property could cease to be criminal and be considered, well, normal. Can any society last long when there is no standard of morality? And if there is no truth, who gets to say what's right and wrong? Can any culture endure the pressure of freedom without restraint? Social and moral chaos is the destination if there is no truth, and I believe that truth begins with this first command. It is absolute. So if you've wondered what God meant when he said, you shall have no other gods before me, 
we've just discussed one of the prime examples of his competition, moral relativism. There are a lot of other gods, small g, that compete for our adoration and compete with this first commandment. Add to moral relativism, materialism. Our money bears the motto, in God we trust. Somebody said, it ought to say, in this God we trust. And that's probably true of a lot of folks. We put a lot of stock into what we own. But materialism is always a constant threat that creeps in to compete with God being number one. Add to materialism, hedonism, and humanism, and any other ism that you can think of, and therein lies the challenge of this command. You see, it's not as if there are a dozen deities out there for you to pick from. There's, there's just one. It's just God. But it's the created deities in our life that are so problematic. Our fourth president, James Madison, who was also the chief architect of the Constitution, said, we have staked the whole future of American civilization, not on the power of government. We have staked the future of all political constitutions upon the capacity of each and all of us to govern ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. I'm grateful for the wisdom of our founding fathers, but today such dictates are often seen as far too antiquated to be of value for our culture. Now, I know what some people say. Well, if, if I could just get a glimpse of God, you know what? If I could hear from God, if, if, if I could somehow experience God visually or audibly, you know, then I could believe. Well, I'm here to tell you, if you're waiting for an audible voice or if you're waiting for a face-to-face visible confrontation, you're going to have to wait a long time because God, I don't think God works that way. I have never audibly heard the voice of God, and I've never seen God face to face as if sitting across the table. I don't suspect you have either. I know that God works and leads and all this, but, but I've never experienced that. But, but I'm here to tell you this morning, his voice and fingerprints are all around us. If you will look and listen, he is communicating his greatness to us. Let me give you just a couple examples. Noted scientist, astrophysicist, author, and agnostic Carl Sagan wrote this. He said the receipt of a single message from space would be enough to know there's an intelligence out there. Do you understand what he was saying? You know, Carl Sagan was fascinated with, with outer space, wrote books that, that, that uh, explore the possibility of hearing of intelligent life from outer space. He says, if we just received one intelligent message, a single message from space, it would be enough for us to know that there is intelligence out there. If in the midst of all the static of the universe, one clear message came through, we, we would conclude there is intelligence somewhere out there. Let me ask you a question. When you pick up a book or a magazine, any book, any magazine, I don't care what it is, when you pick up any book or magazine and you begin to thumb through it, what is your conclusion? Isn't this amazing that this just happened all by itself? Or do you conclude there's an author? Well, of course. I mean, who in their right mind would pick up a novel 
and assume that it just randomly fell together. We know that when you pick up a book and begin to read, somebody has written it. There is an author. That's a safe assumption. If a single message from space is enough to conclude that there is intelligence out there, then why are we so averse to seeing communication of God all around us? Do do you look? Do you listen? Biochemist Michael Behe writes, he said, a typical cell, okay, a cell in your body, just think any, any random cell, pick, pick one out of about millions, okay, you got millions. A typical cell contains thousands and thousands of different types of proteins to perform the many tasks necessary for life, much like a carpenter's workshop might contain many different kinds of tools for various carpentry tasks, end quote, every cell in your body. Dr. Richard Swinson teaches that the work of the DNA is like a computer, a copy machine, and an encyclopedia combined. This is what he writes. If the DNA sequence of the human genome were compiled into 1,000-page books, the equivalent of 200 volumes would be needed to hold it all. To read your genetic sequence out loud without stopping at a rate of three bases per second, and a base is like a single letter, A-T-C-G, A-T-C-G. Okay, if you would read three bases per second, and you would read 40 hours a week, it would take you 132 years to finish reading your DNA sequence. Dr. Walter Bradley writes, each cell, each cell in the human body contains more information than in all 30 volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica. He goes on to say it's certainly reasonable to make the inference that this isn't a random product of unguided nature, but the unmistakable sign of intelligent design, end quote. Oh, people, how much farther do you have to look than just a cell in your body to know that it has the signature, the voice, and the message of God? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Why? Because he's the only one. There is no one like him. Now, I don't know about you, but I have to get this stuff down to earth so I can grasp it and understand it. So let's talk about zucchini. Okay? I, I thought I could handle zucchini. Okay? In the past, we've tried to raise some zucchini and, and, and didn't. You didn't get it done. Now, you'd think any idiot could raise zucchini. I mean, zucchini, how, how many zucchini? I mean, they're just resplendent in their growth. We've had trouble in the past, and somebody said, well, where do you have them planted? Well, we haven't, you know, we told them where we have our boxes, our earth boxes that we haven't planted in. Well, we had them planted next to the cucumbers. They said, oh, they're cross-pollinating. They won't produce if we do that. So this year, we've moved them to a different place. We, we went a few years without trying them. We sprayed them to make sure that, you know, there's no insects and, and I've been watching, and I've been watching, and I've been watching. No zucchini, no zucchini, no zucchini. So I, got, I, I started, I'm going I'm to find out about zucchini. I started reading. Do you know that in every zucchini plant, there are male and female blossoms? The male blossoms come out about two weeks before the female blossoms come out. As if to signal the insects, the bees, pollen is here. Watch, be ready, pollen is here. But here's the incredible part. Zucchini, this, this simple 
fruit vegetable thing that we take for granted. When the male blossom blooms, it blooms for a very short time in the early morning hours. It opens in the morning and closes before morning is over, and it's done. What's more, the female blossom is the very same way, opens for a short time and then closes. And if there is no insect, there is no bee that makes contact with the male blossom and then with the female blossom and pollinates both, taking the pollen from the male into the female blossom, there will be no zucchini. And then I read, on hot days, if you have a period of great heat where it's hot during the day and and it's dry and, and things don't cool down at night, you probably won't have any because the bees aren't very active and there is such a short window between the opening of the flowers that the, bur- that the bugs can't get to it, that the bees can't get to it. And I'm thinking, it, how do we have zucchini at all? <laughs> People, have you, how could all of those pieces of that puzzle come together randomly at the same moment if there was not a grand designer that said, this is how this fruit will come to bear. We've got zucchini by the grace of God. There is but one God. And the good news is this. This prohibitive command also has a positive. The flip side of this prohibition is this. You shall have no other gods before me, but you shall have me. Do you get that from this? God says, you won't have anybody else but me. Don't have anybody else but me. Don't substitute anything for me. But you've got me. Oh, my goodness. Have you stopped to think about that? In all of its grandeur, you don't need any other gods because with him you have all that you need. Let him fill your heart, your mind, and your soul. And when you do, you will possess his grace. And speaking of heart, mind, and soul, this command is an invitation to love God. It really is what it is. You shall have no other gods before me, so love me. Isn't that what a marriage is? Isn't that what happens in a wedding? A groom and a bride, they stand up before the audience and in the presence of God and before a minister. And they will say, I will have no other because I love you more than any other. This overarching theme found first in the book of Deuteronomy and throughout God's word reverberates. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Because he said, I don't want you to have any other gods before me, but you've got me. Love me as I have loved you. Oh, people, do you love him with all your heart? If not, today's the day. No more waiting. No more putting it off. Right now, while we stand and while we sing, you come to the Christ.